Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. Welcome to week three of our sermon series, But God. We're exploring turning points in the scriptures. Now, a turning point is just this. First, this thing happened, but then God did something, and now we're going somewhere else. It's a question that's important for us to investigate, because if we believe that God is good, if we believe that God is worth following, then the reason that God steps in must be that things were not going as they were supposed to. It's a both comforting and kind of an unsettling question for us to ask, because if you think about it, sometimes God steps in when the world is not going as it should, something that we can't maybe expect or control. And I'm just spitballing here, but maybe like a catastrophic mechanical failure in the ceiling of one of the largest rooms in our building. You know, just something to make up for the example. But then God steps in, and we get to watch and participate as the wrongs are made right. But it's not the only reason that God might step in. Sometimes God has to step in because we are the thing that's wrong. Now, I know that might not seem that comforting, especially given the first text I just read. But I think we'll find that it's actually a good thing. So how did we get here? How did humanity get to a place where God actually decides he's sorry that he ever made us? Well, to really understand, we have to go back to the beginning. And I really mean all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So out of this formless and empty void, out of the chaos of the deep waters, comes everything. God begins making boundaries between the waters and the chaos and everything else. Light and darkness, sky and land and sea. Each thing gets its own life and its own light. See, everything here is about making boundaries, putting things in their proper place. The sky is not the land. The the water animals are not meant for the sky and so forth. And then God made people. First, humanity, Adama in the Hebrew, and then from Adama, Ish, which is man, and Ishasha, which is woman. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now a sidebar here. 
The book of Genesis comes from a time when history and theology are blurred together into the same story. It began as an oral tradition with multiple authors, and pieces were then compiled together sometime between the exodus out of Egypt and the return of Israel to Babylon. Some think that it was Moses who compiled it, others aren't sure. This part of the text is actually a poem. It's not a science textbook. Now, all that to say, we have to acknowledge that the burden that we carry as 21st century Westerners, influenced by the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, is that we do care if Scripture or anything else is scientifically accurate. That is how we have been trained to read in our culture. But we must also acknowledge that we will not find those kind of answers, at least in this part of Scripture, because how something happened was not in the minds of those that were retelling the Word of God to one another. Rather, the who and the why are very much at the center. And so the answers we have in Genesis are not necessarily historic or scientific, although I suppose that's possible, but it's not their purpose. Instead, they are theological and they are true. So the question that we are meant to ask, first, foremost, and final, is this. What does this text tell us about the character of God? Okay. Sidebar. So God makes the world, makes humanity in their own image. Of note, they can go anywhere, eat whatever they want, just not the fruit of this one particular tree. And their only job, be fruitful and multiply and steward the earth for God. And that is a pretty sweet sounding gig, if I do say so myself. But then, tragedy. We read this in chapter 3. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. C.S. Lewis wrote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. We are told over and over again in the scripture that God loves us. But in order for God to love us back, God made us with agency, which means that we have to be able to make our own choices. And to have choice means the possibility of not choosing love, not choosing to love God, which it turns out that was the choice we made. And in doing so, we broke paradise. Oops. The boundaries have now been crossed. Food that wasn't meant to be eaten was eaten. So we're cast out of the garden. And the thing is, from there on in, it just kind of keeps getting worse. Boundary after boundary after boundary is crossed. Adam and Eve's one son kills the other son. One of their descendants takes two wives instead of the one he was supposed to have. One decides that if anyone offends him, he'll escalate sevenfold in payback. There's even one passage about fallen angels and the woman that they abducted for procreation. Generation after generation finds some boundary or other to cross until we get to where we started today. God saw that everything humanity thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Creation had gradually chosen to destroy itself. 
And then we know what's next. We read that earlier. God's going to destroy the world with water, as it turns out. The text says that he regrets making humanity, that, God had, uh, that humanity had brought God anguish. Now, when was the last time you thought about God that way? Our culture, um, for a long time, has trained us to think about God as maybe this um, distant force, kind of an impartial judge, the ultimate judge, emotionless and stoic, meeting out wrath on those who offend him, or maybe on the opposite side of things, entirely disinterested, setting things in motion, and then sitting back to kind of watch as it ticks along. And yet, right here at the beginning, we see that God is vulnerable. God has a face and feet and feelings. God has tears and frustration. God wanted the best for what he made, but instead they have chosen the worst. And so God decides to start over because really there's nothing left. You ever play with Play-Doh? I always hated getting the white color in particular because inevitably when you're making stuff out of the Play-Doh, you'd get one little bit of color in there and it was never really white again, right? Always kind of this little shade of green maybe or pink or more likely you'd end up with a whole sort of mishmash of colors in this sort of sludgy brown color by the time you were done. This is like that. In order to get the white again, you actually just need to go get a whole new tub of white. Which is what a flood is. In the beginning, God's spirit hovered over the waters, which are described in the words tohu wabohu, which means formless and empty. The universe was a tub of white Play-Doh, formless, chaotic, ready to be made into something. And then this is what the flood does. It covers the world and it returns the world to its tub of white again. Tohu wabohu, formless and empty and ready to start over. Except that we read that it's not really starting over. Because suddenly we read, verse 8, but Noah found favor with the Lord. Apparently, God's regret is not quite as complete as we maybe thought. Because even in the chaos of creation being undone by its own making, there's still hope. God makes hope. God has decided that creation, that humanity, is somehow still worth saving. You know, made in God's image and all that. So God, in his mercy, in God's faithfulness, in his grace, finds a guy he can work with. Grace found Noah. Now, it's not because Noah was anybody particularly special, because remember, the text says that God decided to work with him, and Noah agreed. The whole world had been corrupted. Noah's no different from that. The next chapter and half of, of Scripture can be summed up with the final verse of chapter 6, and then again in chapter 7. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Grace found Noah, and for some reason, against all odds, against every observation of his, against all information, against all of his emotions, and against the risk of staring him in the face, despite his upbringing, despite his cultural narrative, Noah believed and obeyed. He gets the wood, he builds the ark on dry land, he gathers the animals, he gathers his family because God wants them to come too. 
And because of his doing that, Noah becomes the righteous man that God is seeking. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. So when he finally gets it all together, the ark's built, the family and the animals are all inside, God closes up the door of this ark and then erases the boundaries that he had set in place between sky and sea and land. The scripture says that the rain falls for 40 days and that somewhere in there, the fountains of the deep opened up and with their power combined, the waters cover the whole world 20 feet above the highest mountains. And then everything dies. Tohu wabohu. We're back to formless and empty and void. We are back to chaos of the deep. When my wife and I were first married, she decided that it would be a really good idea for me to, how shall I say this, get some practice parenting, you know, just in case. So at our church, she signed us up to teach this three and four-year-old Sunday school class once a month. And the very first time we taught, we taught the story of Noah. So of course, there were some water activities, and there were some sand activities, and there were animals, and there's some boats, and then it's time to sit down and read the story. So the kids all sit down around Miss Liz, and she begins to read the story to 20-ish preschoolers. Now, what we hadn't really noticed was that outside, it was starting to get dark and darker. And I am not making this up when I say, as she gets to the part in the story where the rains begin to fall, the storm outside hit with a deafening thunderclap and a torrential downpour against the roof and the windows. And the entire preschool class burst into tears. And I'm in the back yelling at Liz, skip to the end, skip to the end. <laughs> See, the kids aren't stupid. They understand what's happening in this story. Because it's totally a children's story. Sure, there are some animals, but this is the story of what happens when we, the corporate we, all of humanity we, when we separate ourselves from God. The world ended. And I know that is not warm or fuzzy or comfortable. But separation from God, separation from the author of life, separation from the creator has consequences. And it's not because God separated from us. We separated from God in our choices. To choose distance from the God of life is to choose death. Now, fortunately, that is not the end of the story. As David Atkinson says, the water which is the means of judgment for the world is at the same time the means of salvation for God's family. In this one action, there is judgment and there is mercy. So 150 days pass, and they're floating. And in chapter 8, we read, but God remembered Noah. Now, memory plays an interesting role in this text. When God decided to wipe out humanity, the literal translation of the Hebrew there is to forget humanity, to blot out humanity from memory. But then here in chapter 8, the word to remember is zakar. To quote scholar Chad Bird, in the Old Testament, to zakar, to remember, is not merely to rifle through the files in your head until you find a fact that you've been searching for. 
To zakar is to employ your hands and feet and lips to engage in whatever action that remembrance requires. So this isn't God just suddenly sitting up in bed one night realizing maybe he left the oven on. Okay? This is God intentionally setting out for new creative action. This is recreation. So when God remembers Noah, immediately a wind begins to blow across the waters. Remember back in the beginning? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And just as the very beginning, now the water begins to recede. Boundaries start to fall back into place. It takes another 10 months, but the boundaries between land and sea and sky are reestablished. Tohu wa bohu gives way to land and sky and sea recreated and brand new again. And the ark lands on top of this little group of mountains called Ararat, and then God speaks to Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Sound familiar? All the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. Wait, what? I have placed them in your power. Okay, again, back to creation. This is the same command God gave Adam and Eve. I have given you them for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. That's new. Then God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Okay, there's so much here. But the important bit is this. This is the very first covenant that God made with humanity. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant is a binding, ongoing agreement between two parties. Seems simple enough. But the first covenant here is kind of odd. See, normally, both parties agree that there is need of a covenant and then come together and they will make a symbol for each of them of that covenant to remind them ongoing. Sort of a reminder of their need to be faithful to this covenant. But in this case, Noah did not seek a covenant. God binds himself to this promise single-handedly, and then in the sky is God's sign of this covenant, a rainbow. Or literally in the text, in the Hebrew, it says God hung up his war bow in the sky to remind God so that God would remember. But God is God, which means that God doesn't need a reminder. So this must be for our benefit. God intended to stay true to this promise whether or not Noah agreed to anything and wanted us to know that whatever we did or did not do, God would be faithful to us. In fact, in some commentaries, they say that if the rainbow is a a symbol of a war bow, the business end of that bow points not down towards the earth, but away from the earth towards the heavens. As if to say that God is so serious about this that God will point the weapon away from us and back towards God. 
Now, obviously, since there's a lot more Bible after this, the peace of this new creation didn't really last that long. In fact, it only lasts about half a chapter. But that's for another time. Three observations. Sin affects everything. According to this passage, sin is taking a good thing out of its proper context. It's crossing a boundary that was put in place, which moves it out of its proper relationship with God. There's a hedonistic myth that day, these days, which is really nothing new, that I can do what I want and it will have no impact on others. But if Noah's story shows us anything, it's that we do not exist in isolation. We are all connected, deeply connected. And so any break in the system changes the whole system. And you do not get to define what separates you from God. Now that's super tempting sometimes. In fact, we find all sorts of ways to justify our questionable choices. But maybe the question we should be asking is, What might God know that we don't? If God is creator, that means God understands something about the creation that maybe the creation itself does not understand. Sees connections that we don't. Purposes that we don't. But the flip side of that coin, excuse me, is that God is also faithful. Now, there's two parts to this faithfulness. God is faithful to their own character, which is called sovereignty or holiness, and God is also faithful to us, which is called mercy. So if God is creator, God understands what works best. God created us for a purpose. But so too, because God understands what's best for us, God also understands our chief weakness, which is our ability to choose, you know, that thing that got us in trouble at the very beginning is also our greatest strength. Because it means that while we are tempted to distance ourselves from God, we can also make the choice to obey God and grow closer. Some of you are artists. What would you feel like if someone received one of your pieces of art and then destroyed it? How much more than when you are that piece of art? As we heard earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, God calls us his masterpiece. And so most importantly, because of these things, God will stop at nothing to rescue us from C.S. Lewis again. But the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or by our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. God is relentless in their passion for us, in his determination to do what is best for us. And as much as anything, it's because we were made in God's image. See, no matter where you are today, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the scriptures say that you are made in the image of God, which means that even if everything else about you feels broken, you are still worth redemption. 
Your world may be tohu wa bohu. You're formless and void. You may feel in utter and complete chaos. Like that white Play-Doh turned into sludge or like a saturated ceiling exploded all over the lobby. But God says, let me remember you because God is faithful. But so too must we be faithful. The first thing that Noah did when he and his family left the ark into this newly recreated world was build an altar. Now God never asked him to do that. God would have kept God's promise either way. Noah builds an altar as a response to God having done something wonderful for him. It's an act of worship. But not only that, it becomes a sign anytime someone made an altar. It's an act of remembering a significant moment. See, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, many others throughout Israel's history follow this example in response to God's work in them and on their behalf. In fact, as we heard earlier, this is why it's written in Deuteronomy, the book of the law. Hear, O Israel, Adonai our God, Adonai is one. And you are to love Adonai your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your resources. You are to remember God. These words which I am ordering you today are to be on your heart. Now someday your child will ask you, what is the meaning of these instructions, laws, and rulings which Adonai our God has laid down for you? Like maybe you should have been talking about it so they would have heard about it. Then you will tell your child, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and Adonai brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Adonai ordered us to observe all these laws, to fear Adonai our God always for our own good so that he might keep us alive as we are today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to obey all these commands before Adonai our God just as he ordered us to do. So I guess there is something here for the kids and for us. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O church. Hear, O people of God, and remember where you came from. Remember who God is and remember what God has done in your midst. And because of that, act with purpose. As God has already remembered us, we too now remember serving God. When we pray, we remember God. When we read the scriptures, we remember God. When we take care of our spouse and our friends and our families and our relatives and dare I say it, our enemies, we remember God. When we serve others, we remember God. When we sing, we remember God. We are remembered and we remember. Pray with me. God, may we act with purpose today and the days to come. May you teach us in the midst of those stories in life where things become formless and void and chaotic. May we remember you well in the times where you rescue us from injustice, whether or not we are the victims or we are making victims. Save us, O God. Have mercy on us. And may we remember and sing your praises. In your name we pray together in one voice. 
we say, amen.